welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. This month, I'd like to look at our current issue of Parabola, Wealth, and I'll begin by sharing Alexandra Haven's essay, The Nothingness of Time. Why do you come to Egypt? Do you come to gain a dream or to regain lost dreams of old? To gild your life with the drowsy gold of romance? To lose a creeping sorrow? To forget that too many of your hours are sullen, gray, bereft? What do you wish of Egypt? When I was young, Sekhmet, the ancient Egyptian lady of slaughter, was my favorite goddess. I didn't know her name or that she was the goddess of war or that she was a goddess at all. I knew her as the straight-backed, cat-faced statue facing the Temple of Dendur in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. We lived in Brooklyn, and my parents were always looking for ways to enrich our daily urban landscape. My mom preferred the Lohan Buddhas in the Met. My dad preferred the dinosaurs in the American Museum of Natural History. But I loved the gold-masked mummies of ancient Egypt at the Met that I believed might, just might, come to life and curse me and my parents. It was a risk that I was willing to take as we walked from the Met's lofted entrance hall down the long, crowded hallways, papered with images and papyri from the Book of the Dead. We would speed past the Roman-era mummies, whose painted faces were too human, their accessibility a betrayal of the inaccessible magic of Egypt. The tomb treasures and hulking sarcophagi were worth pausing to look at on our way to the temple. They were connected to the danger and the mystery of it all, and unlike with the later mummies, I could not imagine myself in the carved sarcophagi. I never wanted to see myself reflected in ancient Egypt. I never wanted it to be real. It lived in the same corner of my imagination as knights and dragons, pirates, and their stolen loot. And so I would wend my way, parents in tow, to the huge glass-fronted hall bordering Central Park and Fifth Avenue, home to the pharaohs and priests of Ra. I would look up at Sekhmet's stone face, skirt past the stone crocodile in the surrounding moat, and cross the marble steps to the temple itself. Somehow, the 18th century graffiti carved into the stone was not a transgression of Egypt's magic, but served to emphasize its age and its dreamlike purveyance. Nose to the sandstone, I wasn't so much transported to the time of the pharaohs as awed by it. Its treasures, so boundless, so ageless, had made it to the museum not just from across the ocean, but across the millennia. It was older than New York, older than America, older than knights and dragons, older than the Bible. I could not look away. It is, I think, one of the most astounding facts in the history of man that a man was able to contain within his mind to conceive the conception of the Sphinx. He who created it looked beyond Egypt, beyond the life of a man. He grasped the conception of eternity and realized the nothingness of time, and he rendered it in stone. I grew up and studied history in college, focusing on European medieval knights and princesses, putting names and dates and reality to stories that first enthralled me as a child. I still have never been to Egypt, though I'm old enough now to know that Egypt, ancient and modern, is real, and that my enjoyment of its treasures are as much stolen as given. But the lore of ancient Egypt never lost its grip on me, 
After college and graduate school, working in London, I would slip into the British Museum during my lunch break to look at the Rosetta Stone and at their Sekhmet statues. Now, living and working in Oxford, I go to the Ashmolean Museum and look at their Egyptian treasures. No matter how far I am from the Temple of Dendur, I can't leave its shadow. Something about ancient Egypt is special, is different. Its gold isn't just gold, but the melted sun of Ra. Tutankhamun's mask isn't just a funerary mask, but the eyes of a millennia-old king challenging us. It has a power that conjures dreams of finding some uncatalogued treasure in a museum or library that will bloom into an adventure. Ancient Egypt's treasures have a lure, a palpable pull, even a threat that stirs us in a way our own gilded palaces and skyscrapers do not. That it has survived the test of time, so much time, is part of the magic. When Cleopatra became pharaoh and had her affairs with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, she was further away from the age of pyramid building than we are to her reign. Most everything about ancient Egypt feels improbable to the point of impossibility. And yet we can gaze at pharaonic treasure, often as beautiful and impressive as the day it was created, and feel wonderment. How can it be? How can an empire so powerful reach out to us across thousands of years, yet itself be gone, literally dissolved into the sand? But ancient Egypt isn't simply a lesson in impermanence. Unlike other great empires that rose and fell, Rome, Greece, beyond, ancient Egypt has an air of otherness around it. Who hasn't felt a chill when leaning down to look at a mummy in a museum? Through its artifacts and treasures, ancient Egypt thrills us. We might think of trips to see mummies as a childlike pursuit, but we encounter ancient Egypt everywhere, in Agatha Christie's mysteries, in movies like The Mummy, even in the Assassin's Creed Origins computer game. When King Tutankhamun's gold mask toured America in the mid-20th century, millions went to see it, waiting hours for the privilege. When one woman in Los Angeles finally got to see the glass box, she leaned forward to see the famous mask and saw the reflection of the man standing next to her. It was Cary Grant. She fainted, and when she awoke, she claimed she had been overcome by the charm of her two favorite people. This attraction to ancient Egypt and its treasures is far from modern. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, iconic conquerors spanning centuries, were all similarly entranced. Great men, their hubris, brought them to seek the glory and divinity of a pharaoh. I can imagine the most determined atheist looking at the Sphinx and in a flash not merely believing, but feeling that he had before him proof of the life of the soul beyond the grave, of the life of the soul of Khufu beyond the tomb of his pyramid. Always as you return to the Sphinx, you wonder at it more, you adore more strangely its repose, you steep yourself more intimately in the aloof peace that seems to emanate from it as light emanates from the sun. And as you look on it, at last, perhaps you understand the infinite. After Napoleon's conquest of Egypt, a new age of Egyptian exploration began, the one that feeds so much of our imagination. 
This was the Wild West of early Egyptology, an age that makes even non-archaeologists shudder at the thought of tomb entrances dynamited and artifacts deliberately destroyed as part of the competition between countries and explorers along the Nile. Slowly, the hunger for Egypt's wealth transformed into more reverence and care, thanks in large part to a woman who ended up in Egypt unexpectedly drawn into an adventure and a love affair with ancient Egypt that would last the rest of her life. Amelia Edwards was an English author with middling fame who ended up in Egypt on a whim when her next planned trip around Europe was ruined due to ceaseless rain. As Edwards put it, here then, without definite plans, outfit, or any kind of oriental experience, behold us, arrived in Cairo on the 29th of November, 1873, literally and most prosaically in search of fine weather. As she began her tour of the country, she kept meticulous notes, which became her book A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, letting us watch as this Victorian woman succumbed to Egypt's thrall. By the time Edwards went to Egypt, she was as familiar with images of the pyramids as we are today. But when she saw them in person, her skepticism, her assumption that they would be one more monument off the bucket list, shattered. She wrote, It is only in approaching them and observing how they grow with every foot of the road that one begins to feel that they are not so familiar after all. But when the great pyramid, in all its unexpected bulk and majesty, towers close about one's head, the effect is as sudden as it is overwhelming. It shuts out the sky and the horizon. It shuts out all the other pyramids. It shuts out everything but the sense of awe and wonder. For it is no easy task to realize, however imperfectly, the duration of six or seven thousand years. And the Great Pyramid, which is supposed to have been some 4,200 and odd years old at the time of the birth of Christ, is now in its seventh millenary. Standing there, close against the base of it, the writer suddenly became aware that these remote dates had never presented themselves to her mind until this moment, as anything but abstract numerals. Now for the first time they resolved themselves into something concrete, definite, real, It was as if one had been snatched up for an instant to some vast height overlooking the plains of time and has seen the centuries mapped out beneath one's feet. It is just that, the ability to see centuries, millennia even, mapped out so simply that marks ancient Egypt's wealth as astounding, not just on an archaeological level, but on a personal, human level as well. When we look at a pharaoh's mask, a sphinx, or even a temple transported across the world to New York City, we are confronted with the span of our history and the mysteries it contains. When we remember that Cleopatra and Julius Caesar considered the Great Pyramid with the same awe and intimidation thousands of years after it was built, we can't help but feel a thread of empathy tying our humanity to these figures. Themselves of so long ago, they are more like stories than history. To consider ancient Egypt and all its influence is to consider time itself on the most fundamental level. No wonder we cannot hold the weight of that thought for long and choose to weave in mummy curses and thrilling tales of adventure. We turn it into a story, true enough to visit in a museum, but distant enough that we can gaze up at Sekhmet as a child, as an adult, and stare into the eyes of the goddess of war. We tell ourselves that she is not staring back. <laughs> 
But we know, as time has proven, that she will survive us all the same. Let's consider now an excerpt from David Ulrich's Zen Camera, The Power of Attention, Learning to See Photography as Spiritual Practice. This is the first, wildest, and wisest thing I know, that the soul exists and that it is built entirely out of attentiveness. Mary Oliver I've saved for last what I think is the single most important attribute of a photographer— the ability to have and pay attention. We must, of course, ask, what is attention, and how can it help us? Neuroscience has not yet found a comprehensive answer, and it remains something of a mystery. We know this much. Attention is experienced as both an ability and a property. Like a muscle, attention can be strengthened, and similar to a force or energy, attention can be distributed and gained. Attention is a tool for awareness. While it may seem obvious, your capacity for attention is fundamental to your work as a photographer. Where is your awareness, and where does it go on its own? Generally, people are preoccupied with themselves and their own lives. Dinner has to be cooked, children need to be picked up, bills must be paid, and work must be done. Everyday details take an inordinate amount of one's attention. That condition is not likely to change, and you often have to surrender to the tyranny of the urgent. But can you make good photographs while thinking about your shopping lists? Not really. Photography is a jealous mistress and demands a singular concentration. Situational awareness is essential in the field, and responsive attentiveness drives the digital editing process. Striving to be as fully present as you can to the creative process imparts force and grace to your experience and to the work itself. When in the field or digital lab, you want to be fully there in the moment, giving a clear, undivided focus to the developing work. Some say energy flows where attention goes. Attunement and flow amplify instantly through sharp concentration. When you give clear attention to your work, it creates a fertile climate for discovery and insight. Attention can gather together the disparate energies in oneself and create a balanced working state between the three basic parts of your creative triad, hand, heart, and head. Without attention, your working state is fragmented and, as we say, all over the place. Several strategies can help gain attention for your work. First, do the everyday details or the daily grind require all of your attention? Usually not. You can leave some attention aside for your creative work. A.R. Orridge, English literary editor and writer, once said, learn to put your left foot forward in life. By this he means, assuming you are right-handed, to put your secondary energies into your shopping lists and carpool and reserve your primary dominant energies and attention for what is most important to you, your creative work, and whatever else you highly value. Second, strike a deal with yourself. Tell yourself that you will give this time weekly or daily for photography and its related pursuits of looking and creative learning. Maintain that focus and commitment. 
The rest of the time belongs to the beast who needs to seek food, shelter, intimacy, and take on the communal responsibilities of completing ordinary tasks. When you do settle in to your creative time, what role does attention play? Let's begin with attention as a capacity that can be strengthened. When behind a camera, you want the dual awareness we spoke of earlier. 50-50 is the key. Half of your attention is given cleanly to the subject or unfolding scene, carefully watching the nuances, details, and moments when something is revealed. The other half of your awareness remains within yourself, making note of what is evoked or stimulated by the subject, thoughts, feelings, sensations, as well as interior impulses and realizations that emerge from the depth mind. More than anything else in the field, the perceptual interaction between yourself and the subject, promulgated through attention, makes the work your own. It infuses the resulting photograph with the quality and content of your thought, viewpoint, emotional understanding, and the very nature of your being. According to Robert Persig in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, quality is found through a third entity, not strictly in the subject or object, but in the interaction between the observer and the observed. Interaction, of course, can take place both or either on a perceptual level or within physical reality. Photographers speak of what they call physical Photoshop, where instead of image manipulation, you physically interact with the scene, removing distracting objects, using a reflector or flash to control light, and moving a little here or a little there to refine your point of view. Your attention to the relationship between what is and what you want drives your work behind a camera. This sort of attention is rigorous and thrives in a quiet mind. Focus unleashes the inner fire of creativity and needs to be stoked. Attention builds on itself and is easily destroyed by distraction. And as you know, interruptions, digital or otherwise, inner and outer, come frequently and can easily steal your hard-earned focus. Many tools are available to strengthen your attention and exercise its potent capacities. Try focusing regularly on what is called le point d'appui, or the point of leverage, the direct connection of your body to the tool in hand. For example, you can strive to be directly aware while photographing of your hand on the camera or the meeting of the eye in the viewfinder. What I often prefer is to hold an awareness of the contact of my feet on the ground, the weight and movement of my body as I navigate through space. To experience these points of contact directly, in the moment and within oneself, helps maintain the broad awareness necessary for creative seeing. In the digital lab, you can place some of your attention on your hand as it governs the mouse or trackpad, or you can, this is harder but possible, stay within and experience the energies of your own nervous system, your brain, and watch the synchronization between the brain and the changing image or flowing words on the computer screen. The camera, after all, is merely an extension of the hand and eye, while the computer is an extension of the human nervous system and brain. You've likely heard the adage, change your posture, change your state. Stand tall and sit straight. Your posture reflects your inner state, and by changing it to a more upright, non-slouching, and non-defensive position, you open your energy channels and enhance both confidence and awareness. Buddhists recommend the simple exercise of becoming aware of your breath, the gentle movement in and out within the central core of your body. 
Watching the breath becomes a powerful means of inner alignment, a method for entering the eternal now, and a way of beginning to cultivate a broad awareness of self and other. Another tool to cultivate your attention is what I call active empathy. Learn to employ Walt Whitman's invisible hand and empathetically reach out to touch the surfaces, textures, weight, and shapes of what is seen. Use your empathetic hand to sense the subject within your own body in an active engagement with seeing. You might also call this your listening sense. Try this with your whole body. Inwardly move and dance to the rhythms inherent in the subject. You allow yourself this freedom with music. Photography also can be a form of dancing with the subject. I often feel at different places within my own body the shape of a tree, the solidity of a rock, the harmonies and dissonances in the scene and in the frame, as well as the implicit nonverbal manifestation or vibes of a person. Inward attention can directly receive what the subject emanates. When you look in this way, the world becomes a living being available to your awareness. Treat the world as a thou, not an it. I hesitate to recommend this next tool because it needs to be approached with great care and attention. Empathetically place your attention inside an object. What does it feel like from the inside? Don't look at the tree, be the tree. Don't examine the sky, become the atmosphere, and feel it deep within you. Cultivating empathy and its sister compassion can bring you to the realization that you are part of everything existing. Be mindful with this exercise. I am recommending an inner work with attention and not a flight of imagination. You are not imagining what something or someone feels like. You are seeking a direct experience through your perception by using empathy. With people, you can learn a great deal through direct empathy. You can experience the weight of their posture, the meaning of a glance and a facial expression, and the materiality of their emotions. People emit their states in an energy field. You can be sensitive to this subtle form of manifestation, and it can help you intuitively determine precisely when to snap the shutter. All of these tools can strengthen your capacity for attention. What about attention as a property with varying qualities, as different from its function as a learned ability? Many have said you are your attention. What you pay attention to, you become. Certainly photography at its root relates directly to where we choose to give our attention. We could say that attention both serves and heightens consciousness itself. By working directly with the property of attention, photography seems an ideal medium through which we may approach the distinctive human aim of expanded consciousness. I feel that we as a culture need this, perhaps more than ever before. Widely considered one of the most important intellectuals of the 20th century, Vaclav Havel, writer, dissident, and former president of the Czech Republic, emphatically told the U.S. Congress in an impassioned speech, Without a global revolution in the sphere of consciousness, nothing will change for the better in the sphere of our being as humans, and the catastrophe toward which the world is headed, be it ecological, social, demographic, or a general breakdown of civilization, will be unavoidable. Through photography, we cannot help but become more attentive to, and conscious of, both the dynamics of self and the realities of life. Photography demands that we look inward and outward simultaneously. The degree to which we can delve within ourselves, 
to witness and know our very personal characteristics and those we share with all others, is the degree to which we can see and know the world. We cannot adequately know the world without first becoming self-conscious. Photography helps you discover your authentic self, the nature of your conditioning, and how you relate to others and the world itself. You see all of this directly reflected in your imagery if you care to look with an impartial eye. You cannot empathize with the conditions of others without first knowing your own humanity, your potentials, flaws, and deep contradictions. Photography, by its very nature, puts you in the world in an engaged manner. Attention is photography's great currency. You need it, I need it, the world needs it. When attention is given, living beings thrive. Plants, animals, and people are enlivened by attention. People are emboldened to become themselves, are healed by and evolve through consciousness. You have the opportunity to give of yourself your conscious attention when taking photographs. Your images can give, not steal, and reveal the presence of your subject in all of its contradictions and radiant glory without taking undue advantage. You have the power of attention in your hands. The awakened presence of a highly attentive person touches and stirs something deep within, a longing for consciousness. Your camera, driven by your gaze, can help heal the world rather than exploit it. It all depends on the maturity and quality of your attention. From Henry David Thoreau, I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by a conscious endeavor. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or carve a statue, and so to make a few objects beautiful. But it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do. To affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of arts. Only that day dawns to which we are awake. Like photography, drawing is a foundation stone in the visual arts. Drawing connects your hand, eye, and brain in a direct manner. It teaches you to become aware of services, textures, spatial relationships, volume, negative space, and light. You do not need to be skilled in drawing to attempt these exercises. All you need is a number two pencil and a blank sheet of paper. First, explore gesture drawing. Sit facing an object and look at it carefully. Choose a place in the object to start and merely allow your hand to follow your eye. Draw the shapes, textures, and details, but with one caveat. Do not look at your drawing except to orient where your hand is located on the page. The value lies in the process, not the result. As you are looking, your body senses what you see and your hand follows. Savor through your hand the properties of the object. Draw the overall shapes with a deep connection between hand and eye. Draw the details with an empathetic eye. You sense the details within your body, delicate and intricate, or large and broad details, and your hand obeys your eyes. The active empathy spoken of earlier in the chapter becomes a means of entering the object, sensing its details, and responding directly through your hand and pencil. As your eye travels, your hand immediately follows. Attention and action synchronize. Second, and this is not one for the faint of heart, this drawing exercise requires both vulnerability and courage, sit directly facing another person at a distance of several feet. 
Both of you hold a pencil and drawing paper. You are going to draw each other's face without looking at the paper at all. The only time you look at the paper is to initially orient your hand and pencil. As your eye traverses the contour and details of the other's face, your hand follows. You make broad sketches of the shape of the face and detailed scribbles of the facial features, skin texture, light, and shadow. As your eye observes their hair, your hand sinks and makes rhythmic movements for the flow of the hair. At all times, your attention remains on their face. Your hand is merely the obedient servant of your eyes. Let every detail of their face translate through your eyes into your hand. Don't cheat and look at the paper, no matter how strong the impulse. Try to be disciplined and unattached to the result. In this exercise, you are being looked at while looking. See if your partner's gaze engenders greater self-awareness. Try not to be self-conscious or embarrassed. Most important, do not laugh. Laughter breaks the intense concentration. Try focusing your eyes on the space directly between your eyes and theirs. The eyes can receive and the eyes can project. You want to do neither or both, but focus on the halfway point where projection and empathy come together into mutual interaction. The whole process generally takes no more than five minutes. When finished, look at and review each other's drawing. My experience in the classroom is that this exercise often surprises the participants. The rough drawings often reveal elements of character and take the shape of caricatures. For the final exercise, draw with a blindfold on. Don't just close your eyes, but use a bandana or scarf to actually blindfold yourself and draw whatever you feel. Allow the drawing to spring up from within. Let the nature of your being on this day, at this time, inform and move your hand. Take three to five minutes and allow your being to translate through your hand and pencil. Another interesting variation of this exercise, draw what you hear. Maintain a broad 360-degree awareness and merely listen. You are listening to any and all sounds, including those that arise from within, like breathing and bodily sounds. The final variation of this exercise will seem contradictory to everything you know about photography. Make photographs with the blindfold on. Use all of your senses to translate your experience of the world. Listen deeply and take pictures. Allow your senses and intuition to guide your camera. Be in a safe space where you can walk a little without falling off a cliff or have a partner with you to ensure safe navigation. Perception takes place with the whole body and mind through myriad senses beyond physical sight. Both photography and drawing have proven their great worth in shifting our awareness to an altered heightened state of seeing, incorporating the left and right sides of the brain. This altered consciousness of heightened perception feels truer to our human potential and allows us to see into things and become one with them. Parabola Magazine is a nonprofit publication and we rely on listeners and readers like you to keep going. Please consider subscribing, purchasing a back issue, or making a tax-deductible donation to the magazine at parabola.org. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening.